Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Christmas edition of the Shameless Picture Show podcast. I'm your host, Michael Vyers, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nick Richards. And we also have a very special uh, co-host with us today because we have my wife, Amanda, sitting in. Say hi, Amanda. Hi. All right. Today, we're going to be changing up a little bit in honor of the holiday and talk about two different films instead of just one. One I've chosen and one that Nick has chosen. Uh, By Nick's request, we're going to pick my option first. Uh, First up is Bob Clark's early 70s proto-slasher about a sorority house during Christmas that keeps getting very strange, very disturbing calls from Mysterious Voice. That's right, our movie today is Black Christmas. The film features Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, and a slew of unknown Canadians that you've never heard of. girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house, too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing. Terminal 55.
Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Um, Nick, this is your first time seeing Black Christmas. What did you think? I really wanted to know a lot more about Billy. <laughs> Billy definitely <laughs> is one of the more interesting characters in this movie. Those those phone calls, those little bits, those teeny little bits that you get tell so much story and yet not enough to satisfy anything. It opens up a whole other world that they never go into. <laughs> uh, I need to mention, uh, they actually made a remake to this film in 2004. And what's interesting about it, I don't know how in-depth you are with your, uh, your, your, your Yuletide horror as I am, but there's another film called uh, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's not nearly as well made. It's kind of schlocking. It's fun. Um, this remake felt more like a remake of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night than it did Black Christmas. But however... The one thing that is really interesting, and even though I think it's kind of a good movie still, is the director just chose to go in-depth more about Billy's childhood. And uh, without spoiling too much, I will say he turned his families into gingerbread cookies. He turned his family into <laughs> gingerbread cookies. He laid their skin out with a, with a cookie masher and baked them. I wish I was making this up because I would put it in my own film because that's so fucked up. <laughs> Actually, after I watched uh, Black Christmas the other day, I watched a little YouTube review analysis of the original versus the remake. Um, so I did get to see little bits and pieces about how they go more in-depth with Billy and Agnes and create this whole backstory for them. So, uh, yeah, I found that really interesting. But gingerbread people. <laughs> well, let's just be clear about this. <laughs> There's ginger gingerbread people. people. <laughs> but anyways, um, so you wanted to know more about Billy. What, 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 what were some of your other thoughts? Because I have a lot to say about this movie. Or at least okay. I, I feel like I do. Hopefully I actually do have a lot to say. But um, Well, the the first thing I'll mention, um, now it, we have said it sporadically throughout that given this concept that we're stockpiling episodes to begin, these may end up playing out of order, but the last episode that we recorded was our Exorcist episode. And in that we discussed how a lot of the the scary elements or, or rather the elements with the demon and Raiden uh, had a lot to do with uh, sexuality and women's lib and other very topical elements that they used um, as kind of a foundation for this and I found some similar themes in this where um, it's on a college campus in the I believe late 70s correct? Uh, it's actually early 70s. It's 1974. Okay. Um, so this is a time period where you're coming out of the 60s, and a lot of these issues are, are being talked about, particularly on college campuses. Um, 
So I, I found it interesting how this is now the second episode in a row where there's this horror movie that has a lot of um, women's issues at the core of the narrative. Yeah, uh, it wasn't intentional, but it, it was kind of a, a happy accident. Uh, because that's actually <laughs> one thing I have to say I like quite a bit about this film. Is it, um, there's never a point where the, the female characters feel like victims. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And one thing I think uh, I have to say about this film that I love is um, uh, a review I read earlier today. I put it very uh, succinctly where they said that uh, fan, uh, people watching this film now may have the urge to say uh, to kind of roll their eyes at this film because of all the, the horror cliches. Uh, but they'd be wrong because this film created a lot of them. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and... Uh, like one of the like, that, that's one thing I really appreciate the sh- you know the strong female where but it, where it didn't feel like it was being shooed in it didn't feel like oh we need to make this 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 strong female because she didn't like fight back or anything she just she never played it as a victim no, none of the characters did like even when you know shit started hitting the fan they were just kind of like making fun of this this creepy voice that's calling uh, their phone and uh, like Margot Kidder I don't think she took any of it seriously ever and I appreciated that because like all these characters felt felt uh, very organic and very real and I also think it's 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 partially because uh, of the direction but then also um, I, I could talk about this a little bit more later on but Black Christmas fits very nicely into this this time period of film called Canucksploitation. <laughs> it's Canadian exploitation films. And they've got a very distinct look and feel and vibe to them. And uh, for lack of a better term, they feel very Canadian. And to me, this movie feels very Canadian. Everyone's very polite. All the actors are very real without seeming like they're, like they're acting. Uh, and then the use of architecture and whatnot, but no, there's it's a thing called Canuck exploitation. Look it up. <laughs> they really need to shoot in places other than Howard Johnson's. That's would or, help. <laughs> or Tim Hortons. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, there um, was that shoot in a uh, hockey scene, which I'm sure in Canada just seems so very normal. But like when I watch it, it's like, <laughs> why are they playing hockey? <laughs> what what is this crazy sport with the sticks? That's called curling. Curling, frosty chess, ice road sweeping, and broom goes the dynamite. Now, for those of you who have yet to join the curl squad, let me break down the complexities of the game. One person throws a rock across the ice while two others rub brooms in front of it. And you're all caught up. Um, and I'll uh, kind of scaffold on what you said about the, the female characters as well. And there's several of them. This is clearly a sorority, and, and there are many um, strong female characters dealing with this threat. But they all do it in a very unique way, um, but all equally as strong. So they're all unique. They're, they're multidimensional, for, particularly for being a horror movie. It's, it's refreshing to see that level of dimension. I was also impressed, too, because there, there was very few uh, uh, stereotypes. Like, you had uh, Mrs. May, which I thought her name was Mrs. May in the credits, but I could have sworn they kept saying Mrs. Mack. But, uh, <laughs> nice. um, the, uh, she, you know, she's the uh, the stereotypical drunk house mother character. But, like, other than that, like, the girl who I would have pegged as being the nerdy girl, she didn't really show any of those signs. And she's obviously cool enough to be in a sorority. You had uh, Olivia Hussey, who was the lead, char- uh, the lead uh, female that made it through the to the end. Um, 
she didn't really have many of the traits of, say, like, later on the Laurie Strode-type character where she's just very studious and to herself. And then you... Um, and even a, a Margot Kidder's character, who's kind of like the fun, drunk party girl, even she <laughs> managed to stay out of the range of stereotypes, which I found uh, very interesting. And I uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I feel like it has to come, do coming down to the directing uh, by Bob Clark, who has kind of always been a journeyman filmmaker. And also worth mentioning that he redefined the Christmas movie genre twice by doing <laughs> both this and a Christmas story. A lot of similarities between the two. I didn't realize they were two separate films. <laughs> <laughs> I could have sworn at one point on the phone he said, you'll shoot your eye out. But you know, <laughs> right? maybe that's just me. <laughs> Careful, Agnes, you'll shoot your eye out. You'll shoot your eye out. You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> I do have to say, like, I was surprised when I rewatched it today that uh, how vulgar some of those calls were. Like oh, I, yeah. within the first three minutes, I heard the word "cunt" and "pussy" like at least five times. And Mardo's Mardo Kidder's reaction to that is priceless as well. Not bad. Suck my juicy cock. I'll come over. I'll come over, and you can you can suck it, suck it. Okay. Listen, you pervert. Why don't you go over to Lambacai? They could use a little of this. Oh, why don't you go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. You fucking creep! I'm going to kill you. So this this being your first time watching Black Christmas as a whole, you know, and I I, I know I believe you like horror films, but I don't feel I don't think you're in nearly as into them as I am. Kind of give run me through your thoughts, especially you know. While I feel like this film was very effective, was probably really effective in 1974. Tell me what you felt about it in, in 2016. Um, I I am really into horror, though. Um, I originally got into it retroactively in that like late 80s, early 90s period when a lot of these uh, uh, horror franchises are starting to get established. So. When I was in late high school and college, I got really into the movies that my friends were watching in middle school and early high school. So the the Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the 13th and Child's Play and, and Halloween and all of these. Um, and then from there, I started getting into the older classic horror films of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So my horror... Uh, Experience kind of skipped over that late 60s, 70s, early 80s period. So this one fit really nicely in that pocket of time that I just haven't watched a lot of horror movies from. And it is, it's, um, it's really unique in that a lot of these tropes, as, as you had brought up, um, that I've seen throughout these other later franchise films, I saw in Black Christmas, but I could tell not not researching it or pinning down the exact beginnings of it that that or i got the sense that this was not them uh just using tropes but establishing 
iconic ways of doing things that then later became tropes. Yeah, like, and I think it goes without saying that anyone who hasn't seen this movie should stop the podcast, go and watch it, and then come back. <laughs> We're not going anywhere because there's going to be spoilers. And I, I, I feel like the biggest one that I need to point out as far as, like, what's become a cliche now was kind of revolutionary at the time was simply... The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Like... To this day, like even though I know it's coming, it still it still gets me. And yeah, I feel like even when I even when I saw the movie for the first time, I kind of had a feeling it was coming because by that time it was a trope. But it's still really effective to me. Yeah, it was also interesting seeing a film that revolves entirely around phone calls uh, coming in a time pre-cell phone. Like they're so ubiquitous in film now. Um, but to see, you know, even when they're not dealing directly with the killer calling them, just about every scene either opens, closes, or both with a phone call. Even if it's somebody calling into the police station and then picking up the phone before they cut away, it is that that phone call is like a heartbeat almost to this film. No, completely. And it's, I find it really, really fascinating too because. Like, other than some of the fashion sense and obviously the fact that they're using landlines, this film has not really aged uh, – it has not aged poorly at all. Like, I feel like you could show this film to to people now. And like I said, other than some of the uh, the, the, the tropes being just that, tropes, uh, I feel like it still holds up very well. Uh, none, none of the, nothing in the film is played for laughs. Like, there's some goofy – there's some characters who are joking around, but there's really no campy, goofy characters – um, the kills are all treated very dead seriously. Even the the cops who are joking around don't feel like the normal goofy horror movie cops. Like you always get the feeling that John Saxon, who played the uh, the lead police uh, detective, you feel like he actually cares, and he's bringing a a real performance into this movie that <laughs> at the time probably didn't warrant it because you know at this time horror movies still weren't taken seriously. Uh, if big name actors did them at all, it's because um, they need a paycheck so not many people tried very hard and it's refreshing to see a movie where they do and what you're saying about the phone calls kind of being a heartbeat for the film they're ad- it added this great suspense and tension to the film like uh near the ending of the film when they're tracing those calls and it keeps cutting back between the pervert on the phone the de- detective and then the guy at the phone company running trying to trace this call <laughs> it's still a suspenseful scene warehouse-sized uh, contraption for for tracking down phone locations yeah but with the exception of that obvious technological thing i i totally agree that um you know as as much as i really enjoyed lost boys and think that that was a great film um i think i i would go so far as to say that black christmas has aged better than lost boys has I agree, and like some of the fashion sense seems goofy. I've like seen bell-bottom pants, but they're coming back. Like that character, that, yeah. that, that character who um, the um, the boy I call him the boyfriend character, not Peter, the 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 P, the concert pianist, but the the boyfriend character for the young woman who died uh, early in the film. You know the right. the hockey goalie when he walks in with his giant pimp coat that that's like this <laughs> this uh, like this giant fur coat. I'm like I'm thinking to myself I could see someone on the east side of Milwaukee rocking that right now, <laughs> and I'm sure there's someone is and it's or it reminds me of like 
from Workaholics, the bear the bear coat that that one character wears. It's just a giant bear skin. It's like I could see someone wearing that now. Like this movie, just it seems more contemporary than it should for being about such old tech. Right. <laughs> um, one other thing that I really enjoyed was the uh, the I I found myself throughout the entire you know horror movie really admiring the Christmas decorations. They were <laughs> so too. warm and nostalgic. I mean, these are the same things that my parents were hanging up when I was six, seven, eight years old. These the the, the colors are so warm in a way that modern Christmas lights aren't. And it like I I shouldn't be feeling this way <laughs> while watching people getting gutted and though well, that's another point is they didn't really show a lot of the kills if any um they would always cut away to the tops running in and then not even show the scene it was all about the tension of those phone calls and the the what's coming for us no exactly like it, it's um it's it's it, this movie has a very classy touch to it. Like when Margot Kidder's character dies and when she's killed with that glass unicorn, it's like the way they shot that scene was so surrealistic and weird, but it made me uncomfortable. And also going to what you're saying about the Christmas decorations, I absolutely love their Christmas tree they had. Like the one time we got to see it in full glory when it was backlighting the character of Peter and it had like that angel hair on it that looks like someone just sneezed on the tree. Like you can't, there's so much shit on their tree, you can't see the actual tree. And I, I don't know, that made me sentimental for a time that is long but past. But one thing I have to say about this film, like, granted, I have a lot of things to say about this film. Is uh, I'm going to keep harping back on the direction of this film. There's so many things that I feel like were very well done to kind of set a mood for not for the not only the characters but the time period. Well, one of the ones that really stands out to me is when uh, I'm going to refer to her as the first victim because I cannot re- recall the character's name. Uh, well, the first victim when her father shows up. Um, and uh, they're standing in her room. They're talking to Mrs. May, and they're they're doing a close up on that poster of the old granny flipping off. The, it's like a shot by shot of an old granny, granny granny giving us the bird. It's like that is just a unique cutaway. It's a it's a it's a great use of the what's around you in the room to help set up the time period when you know this this idea of rebellion is is still coming in from the '60s, and she can become even stronger in the '70s give an idea of, of college life at the time and these characters and just how hoity-toity that dad is because he's just so unapproving of that grandmother giving us the bird. Um, <laughs> and it's choices like that that I, I feel like is what makes Bob Clark a really sh- strong filmmaker or the fact that this movie was not expensively made. It was a very cheap movie, but he added a lot of atmosphere, ambiance, and, and in my notes I said he moved the camera like he had a huge budget. Sure, except when he's doing those first-person camera views, which I think were the point because it's supposed to feel you're supposed to be in the headspace of Billy. I I really in, while we're talking about cameras, camera angles, um, it seemed you know the majority of this film takes place in the sorority house. Uh, yep. You know, arguably secondary is is the police station, but they don't go out a whole lot. And what I found really interesting are the few times that they did seem to leave those two particular locations they always seem to go to a shot of the bodies in the attic 
looking out of that window, um, which had a really interesting effect on me. It made it feel like whenever they were looking for anything beyond that sorority house, it, it was the director or the killer or the bodies telling them they're wrong, that it's right there. Long before you get that, the call is coming from inside the house thing, those bodies are reminding the viewer that the problem is right there just above their heads the whole time. And that and that shot of uh, what I the woman I now affectionately call the first victim, of her <laughs> with that plastic wrapped over her face in the rocking chair is straight nightmare fuel. Like, if I would have seen this movie as a child, instead of, like, I think I was in high school when I first saw this. Turner Classic Movies actually showed it, uh, surprisingly. Nice. Um, that would have been straight kinder trauma right there. That would have scared the <laughs> shit out of me. And to this day, it's still... Like, that final shot where, like, you see the woman up in the window with the plastic wrapped on her face, and she looks frozen, and the camera kind of zooms out as the phone rings again. It's like, ah, oh, gives me chills. It's one of the few things that I actually remember from two years ago when I saw this. Because it's frightening. It works. And uh, uh, if I can uh, uh, m talk about that ending a little further, um, I think it's masterful. Like, um, I feel like people watching it now will call it, you know, that um, Peter wasn't the killer and whatnot. But from that moment where the cops bust into the house and you see uh, Jess laying there with Peter on her lap and he's he's been gutted from her because she defended herself and then you um the she wakes up and everything you're like oh everything is better Peter was the killer everything's good the cops all leave the hustle bustle of the house and then the camera masterfully uh goes from Jess and laying in her bed to each bedroom where one of the murders happened back up to and then back up to that attic and you start hearing giggling and you realize that peter was this this red herring this entire time and who and we really still to this day don't know who the killer is it's got this great nihilism to it because like so many horror films feel the need to um give you an idea who the killer is or show you in the long run this movie doesn't give a shit it's just this creepy dude, Billy, who fucking snuck into the sorority house for some reason, and he's still up in that attic. And then when it start, when you the credits start rolling and you hear the the phone ringing over and over again, I think it's an amazing ending. Yeah, and it's subtle too. I actually, upon completing the film, went back and watched like those last 10, 15 minutes or so over again because, you know, have, for being the first time I watched it. I wasn't sure whether to take that as just mood, atmosphere, echoes of of what had been, because you have that shot of uh, Juliet, whatever <laughs> uh, the actress's name is, Olivia Hussey, is that it? Hussey. Hussey. You that Hussey. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's correct. <laughs> okay, Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in that bed, and and you could, I could see somebody choosing to have that audio playing as just kind of, you know, the echoes of this experience. Um, but upon watching it again, I decided that I think the intention was, as you described it, that Peter was not the killer and it's somebody else who's still at large. But um, they, they chose to make it just this little kind of, you know, very gentle 
transition out to the end of the film they didn't go dun 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 guess what it wasn't peter you know it was it was subtle <laughs> and i loved it, that it's also great too because like people who aren't really paying attention will get the feeling oh it was peter this entire time because it's very easy to miss the mumbling up in the attic like when they they show the this the the attic door and you hear mumbling and giggling from billy and you know it's very easy to miss that and for people to be like well it was obviously peter because like the silhouette of billy kind of looked like peter and since um you know billy was in the house the entire time he overheard all the conversations so that's why in the phone conversations he was quoting things that peter said to jess it's like it's very easy for people to just dismiss oh it was peter the entire time but upon a second viewing it's it's, it's just some guy in the attic why we don't know and the unknown of the of the whole situation i feel is what makes it so scary we don't know who he is we don't know why he's doing this we don't know why he chose a sorority he's just there and he's gonna be there because no one's gonna find him especially when you put that lieutenant on the case because he's fucking terrible at his job (laughs) the guy that keeps fucking everything up you know what i'm talking about (laughs) cops man Uh, disclaimer, I'm very appreciative of law enforcement, but in horror films, they tend to be portrayed... As dum-dums. A little daffy, yeah. Daffy's better than dum-dum. I like that. <laughs> Where were you the night of April the 16th? I... I... A likely story. I see it all now. You and the upstairs maid. Do the old boy in, you said. Elderberry wine and old lace, you said. Then, the quick getaway, you said. Rio de Janeiro, tropical nights, romance, and a heavy bank account. No, no! Yes, yes, but you weren't smart enough, John. Alias Johnny, alias Jack, alias Jackie! What's Humphrey Bogart got that I ain't got? Um... If you don't have anything else to add to Black Christmas, I've got a little more I want I want to say but before I go on, st- stand on my soapbox. Uh, the, I'm going to give you the chance. All right. The the only other note I have, and it's really just a little side note that again could have been done intentionally to to keep those red lights pointing at Peter. Um, but the the contradiction of Peter, where he gets so self righteous about the abortion with the phrase you're gonna murder our child but then when they found the small child murdered in the park he was like oh that's okay (laughs) direct quote that's okay i know how is that okay and actually oh continue it wasn't like something like you know it, there was no context to say, oh, he was saying that's okay because it wasn't you or it wasn't somebody else. All she said was, a child was found murdered in the park, <laughs> to which his very human response was, that's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, more, every time I watch this film, I just don't like Peter. You know, his very sweaty concert performance when he's playing the piano and then him destroying said piano with a very heavy stick. Uh, I think it was Mike's your microphone stand, but uh, regardless, yeah, they built them thicker back then. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I uh, that park scene I also thought was very well done because, like, it's 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 refreshing to see. I say refreshing in such in such an old movie. It's refreshing to see <laughs> in a horror movie where um, a murder is taken seriously because like most slasher films, it will take place in the course of a day or so or a night. So there's no chance. There's no chance to be urgent. But this film takes place over the course of at least two to three days. So when the first girl goes missing, the cops actually create a search party to look for her. 
<laughs> logic. And Amazing. I, and I also love that, you know, she, uh, the first victim disappears, and it's not automatically, well, she must have been murdered. It's like, oh, she is probably missing or something. So they look for her, and I just like that it didn't jump to those serial killer uh, tropes too quickly. Because, like, that's, yeah. something, that's my problem with someone, say, like, the later Halloween films or something. It's like someone disappears, and it's like, well... Must have been a killer. It's probably a, it's probably Michael Myers, or as they love to say, a copycat killer. <laughs> Before we move on to the Family Stone, I was I was thinking to myself when I was watching this last, and I was talking to Amanda about this, that you know it's it's very obvious that I am a, a huge mark for Halloween. Mark being a professional wrestling term for a huge nerd, essentially like a big fan. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of that film. It's the reason I went to film school. I saw that movie before I saw Black Christmas. But after having seen Black Christmas a couple of times throughout my life, it's I feel like Black Christmas should have the reputation Halloween does. Because uh, not saying Halloween did anything wrong, because obviously I think it's, a, it's also a masterpiece. It's, it did everything right. But there's just things that I feel like Black Christmas did better more successfully than Halloween and I can definitely see where John Carpenter took some influence from Black Christmas to make Halloween and I just feel like uh, Black Christmas should be the lauded uh, slasher film that Halloween is yeah yeah absolutely and uh, uh, my last note is I, I was looking at uh, there's actually when I was telling you about Canucksploitation there's actually a <laughs> website called Canucksploitation.com where they have a master list of everything from I think 1965 when the term was first coined or at least when it first started up until like now with Hobo with a Shotgun. And I was looking at the review that Canucksploitation wrote uh, about Black Christmas and there's this little section that I want to read out loud because I think it's really great. It said, even though it, being Black Christmas, was made by an American, Black Christmas has a very strong Canadian sensibility. In his review of the film, David Alexander, not the Seinfeld guy, points to the killer in Black Christmas as a representation of the Canadian persona. Billy stands out against the traditionally macho film murders as a more effeminate presence. He is more emotional than logical, seems obsessed with motherhood, and has smaller features. Keeping with this, it is the stronger female characters that actually represent a threat to Billy, as the male characters often prove, prove to be impotent as the loser characters. So yeah. there's a little bit of, of Canadian theory behind this. <laughs> but no, I think Black Christmas is a masterpiece. I don't give many films five stars if I were to rate them, but this one I definitely would. Yeah, it, it was nothing but uh, enjoyment on my end as well. And you watched it off of YouTube, and I'm assuming it was probably gonna be, it was probably ripped off a DVD. And I've seen that old DVD that came out for Black Christmas, and I thought it was near unwatchable. So <laughs> something kept you going through this film. Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, get the majority of my connection to film uh, through narrative. I mean, I, I certainly appreciate uh, soundtrack and, and camera work and whatnot. But um, whenever I'm working with other filmmakers, I'm kind of the story guy. So that's... As long as the story is compelling, I can forgive a lot. Um, so that's, you know, while I'm, I'm sure the, the higher quality versions of the film, as it was intended to be seen, are beautiful, um, I can watch a low quality version on YouTube and, and still stay engaged. Very well said. Um, next, we're going to change directions from a, <laughs> a creepy Yuletide a chilling film 
to something a little more lighthearted, uh, <laughs> Nick's choice for this uh, for this episode was The Family Stone, a dramedy from 2005 directed by Thomas Bazucha about the misadventures about the titular family during the holidays, but with one caveat. The eldest son, played by Dermot Mulroney, brings home his stuck-up city girlfriend, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Who else? The film has an all-star cast and features Diane Keaton, Craig T. Nelson, Luke Wilson, and many others. You don't have to be nervous. I'm not. They're going to love you. There's nothing harder than joining a family. He intends to give that girl my mother's wedding ring. Especially one like the Stones. She's got this throat-clearing tick. It's like she's digging for clams. Ready? <clears throat> yeah, they're all watching, you know. They have a funny way of making you feel at home. Hello, you have a lovely home. All the better to entertain you, my dear. Don't dilly-dally there, pretty lady. We're all gonna be down here talking about you. She is completely uptight. I am not sleeping with you in your bed, in your parents' no, house. Separate bedrooms. It's so silly. Are Everett and Meredith going to get married? Four words. Second, second, second word. Beekeeper. Ring. Bride. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. They hate me. They hate they me. They just met you. I just figured you'd give her a hard time, have a good laugh, but then back off. Meredith's checking into the inn. And now her sister Julie's giving up Christmas with her entire family in order to be with Meredith. I'm ashamed of all of you. Well, even you. Hi. Hey. Hi. This holiday season. He's going to ask me for that ring. Mom, enough. About the ring. From the producer of Sideways. You have a freak flag. You just don't fly it. Uh oh. We will try to behave like a civilized family. I don't care whether you like me or not. Oh, of course you do. Claire Danes. Diane Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Dermot Mulroney, Craig T. Nelson, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Luke Wilson. The Family Stone. What's so great about you guys? Nothing. It's just that we're all we've got. And you! You're the worst! I'm the worst! Boy. your film uh, choice do you want to start with asking questions or however you want to do this no i think um we find our best groove when we start with a, a first impressions from the first watcher um first impressions were as i was because this is one of, this is one of my mom's favorite movies as well and after watching it i will say i enjoyed the film uh, i didn't love it like uh not the way that i say love something like black christmas but i i enjoyed it quite a bit and i do have some problems with it which we'll get into a little bit later but for the most part i really enjoyed it i am just racking my brain to figure out why this is one of your favorite christmas movies and one of my mom's favorite christmas movies <laughs> it it's probably fifth or sixth on the list but uh i definitely gravitate towards the sentimental christmas films well, it's it's no love actually, but it was still pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> what is? Love actually is a hard fucking movie to top, and I don't care if I lose all of my my street cred for saying it. Love actually is a great movie. I agree. Plus, seeing Rick Grimes with a baby face is pretty fantastic, and an accent 
Oh, God. Oh, God, it's porn. It's just porn. We'll be raided by the porn squad. I'm going to porn prison. His fucking English accent. I, uh, me and Amanda watched uh, Love Actually, I want to say last year. And when I saw uh, Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead, I'm like, what? You're in this movie. And you're so... And his, and his frosted tips. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot about that. The frosted tips in his hair. And he has that really lame... The sweater that zippers up real yeah, high. And, and he has that really lame but sweet because it kind of made me cry moment where he has the fucking cue cards like a Bob Dylan music video. But this episode's not about love, actually. <laughs> it's about the family stone. Because uh, I could do a whole episode on love, actually. <laughs> Some of my initial thoughts for the family stone was one of them, and because it hit me right over the head from the beginning, is the color palettes of the family stone I thought was great. This, this really warm, kind of yellowish tone, which, if treated improperly, it could have been very much like a Wes Anderson film, especially with this cast. <laughs> Um, but I, I thought it made me smile a little bit. This warm, loving, Christmassy yellow tone. You know, this it's about warmth and inviting. And they hate Meredith. And I was like, oh, that's a nice <laughs> contradiction. It's supposed to be warm and inviting. And they're all jackasses to this woman. <laughs> and even though I'm not normally a big fan of Sarah Jessica Parker, I like her in some of her younger, her earlier roles. And I like her a lot in Ed Wood. Do I really have a face like a horse? Uh, I have a hard time dissociating her with uh, Sex in the City. Uh, but she was actually probably my favorite character in this movie. It's because she was the only one that wasn't terrible. Yeah. Like... <laughs> She she has some moments where like like that dinner that dinner scene or maybe it was breakfast I don't know but when she's taught like commenting on Diane Keaton's thing about how she was hoping one of her kids was gonna be gay and she decides to open her mouth and you you kind of want to you want to watch the scene through your fingers because you're so embarrassed <laughs> for her. I just don't think that any parent would hope for a child to be challenged like that. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't hear a word you said. Sorry this isn't coming out right I just. No. All I'm trying to say is that I, what I mean to say is life is hard enough as it is, and it just seems to me that you wouldn't want to make it any more difficult for your child. I mean, Patrick, Patrick, you must understand what I'm trying to say, right? What did, what did you say? Oh, well now, boss, I think we have been hit twice. No, <gasps> no, 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 I'm sorry, I did not mean that. Honestly, Why I- Why don't you try saying I, what it is you do mean? Everett. All right, that's enough. I'm sorry. Well, that's enough. I just think any parent would want a normal child. Oh! God damn you, okay? Sybil. Don't Sybil me. Just for the child's sake, just to make it easier for the child. That's <laughs> enough! Like, that was pretty terrible of her but for the most part she's fucking trying the rest of them are not even Everett's not trying I, I think she brought a, an amazing amount of humanity to what could have possibly even been written as it's hard to tell but it's so close to that stereotypical stuck up uh, dry you know lack of personality uh work-driven character um and and she's presented that way from the beginning and that's clearly how this family views her but throughout the course of the movie she 
she brings so much life to it in a way that doesn't portray uh sorry betray who she is that i i and that's you you said you weren't sure why it was one of my favorite christmas films and and just in general as a film i love how these characters were written and portrayed there was so much uh subtle uh you know when when there's such a large cast each character only gets so much screen time they only have so many lines uh and and camera time to tell the audience who they are and by by the first time i watched that movie i knew exactly who each of them were and none of them were two-dimensional to me they all had life to them and that's why i really connect to this film and and that's just as true of Meredith as it is of everyone else. You you mentioned about uh, so many characters having very little screen time, or it's hard to kind of develop characters. Uh, I was reading a review uh, from Roger Ebert about this film, which he, he actually really liked. He gave it three out of four stars. Uh, and in his review, he said... Um, the family, Stone, the family Stone sorts out its characters admirably, depends on typecasting to help establish its characters more quickly, and finds a winding path between happy and sad secrets to that moment when we realize that the Family Stone will always think of this faithful Christmas with a smile and a tear. I do have to say that um, if I had a complaint, it would be that you know some of the characters felt kind of one-dimensional. But after reading Ebert's review, it makes sense. You some, when you have this many characters, you have to rely on tropes a bit because that's the quickest way for you. Like, oh, he's the gay character. I get that. I now know where to start my opinions on him based on, or, you know, I now kind of get an idea of who he is, so you don't have to give me a lot of drawn-out explanation. And then from that trope, you can grow. So, uh, after reading his review, I was like, okay, uh, that makes a lot more sense now. I never viewed it in that way. Sure. And, you know, the, you know we, we were talking about tropes in the last film. We have talked about tropes a lot. Um, you know, you, you hear the phrase gay character, and when you think of a gay character trope, you go to the more flamboyant, you know, fun character that brings light, lightness to the otherwise somber, at least that's, that's what I think of when I think of a trope, something from like a uh, Christopher Guest film where, you know, you'll have this very loud, aggressive character, but, um, you know, um, and I, I didn't refresh watch this, and I should have, so I can't think of his name. Um, uh, can you recall the character's name? Thaddeus? Is that it? Uh, the 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 deaf brother? Yeah, yep. I if think you it get, was Thaddeus. You're probably right. Uh, um, Thad, yeah, Thaddeus. I, I didn't see, yes, you know, you have the gay character, but I didn't at any point feel that I, I felt like he was a brother in this family first, who was like uh, a husband second and a future father third, and then deaf and or gay fourth or fifth. You know, it was mm -hmm. I I didn't interpret it that way. Yeah, and I'm I'm amused that like the the family stone they uh, them as a collective they were so like snotty against Meredith because she's you know this rich woman from the city but Amanda made a good point when we were watching it that they live in this big house 
you know. Her house was so big. They have this big house, a big <laughs> family. Uh, the Diane Keaton has a MacBook, or not a MacBook. She has a Mac computer. Back when they were even more expensive. Uh, I just read Thad's uh, uh, bio, and he's an architect. They have money. They don't don't pretend like they don't just because they got a quirky way of living. So it kind of pissed me off oh, that they were absolutely. so that they were so against uh, against her. Um, her silver spoon that I she said was stuck up her ass. Yeah. Like, what is with that? The silver spoon stuck up her ass. It's like, what's stuck up their ass is the, the better question, I think. And uh, yeah. side note a little bit, I'm amused because I never put this together until I saw this fucking poster that the family stone could also be the ring. That's the family's stone that Everett was trying to get from oh, his mother. I never put I that together. I did it. I've seen it a lot more times than I haven't put it together. <laughs> like I saw that poster and I was like, why is there a wedding ring? I know marriage is a subplot. And I was like, oh, the family stone. That was oh. yeah. Yeah. That's some, that's yeah, some it, trickery. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to feel about that. I think I have to let it sit with me for a minute before I can come up with an angle on it. We will I mean, uh, I, come back to that. <laughs> my first reaction is I hope that there was that that was a bigger plot point that got thinned out in editing in order to anchor the name to it. Yeah. You know, and, we, and we were talking about name connection with the Lost Boys, too, where at least with the Lost Boys, like, that concept was the... Even though they didn't really reference it, it was the main objective of the antagonist at the end. The The family ring i didn't feel i mean it was certainly an element of the film but i didn't think it was the crux of the narrative where you should anchor a title to it but no i feel like it was definitely important to the narrative because like everett came to christmas that year with the intention of getting the ring even though i never got the impression that like he was that completely so i feel like he he wanted to get married because he thought that's what he had to do but I'm going to transition into my biggest problem with this film. And my biggest problem with this film is a character by the name of Everett Stone. <laughs> he's a jackass. Yeah, I, I, he's probably my least favorite character. And I usually really like Dermot Mulroney. And I, the entire time I was like, fuck you, Dermot Mulroney. Uh, because, I don't care if you want to see that totem pole. <laughs> yes, like that, that, all of that annoyed the shit out of me like um the moment that was her name julia the sister julie julie the moment julie got off the 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 uh the bus and he had this like big profound moment that he's in love with her that's when the movie started to lose me didn't lose me completely um but that's when it started to lose me because that's when it went to a very cliched rom-com moment and it annoyed me Almost even more than, like, some. Because, like, he had a girlfriend who he was trying to marry. Yeah, and... It, it, like, didn't make any sense. And every other character was very quick to be like, oh, he doesn't love her. He doesn't love her. But we never heard it from his own mouth. So then it just... It seems even more adulterous. Because at least when Meredith and Ben get together... um, I can believe that more because they've had a little more time to spend with each other. Ben has showed an interest in Meredith since she first got here. I don't think it was ever an an intention of, like, I'm in love with her. He was just into her. Um, And them going out and drinking, I can buy that they they grew enough connection going out and getting drunk with each other. 
but Ben and Julie taking a walk together and talking about a totem pole, I just had a hard time believing any of that. Uh, so much so that near the at the end of the film, when Julie gets on her bus and Everett's waiting and the bus leaves, and then the bus stops for her to get off and they have this big running hug that's like as if they, they are two lovers that haven't seen each other in three years or something. I felt like it would have been way more impactful if that bus would have kept going. And <laughs> instead, next year, he showed up with a different girl who is a better fit for him that wasn't Julie. Because I believe sure. that Meredith and Everett were too similar, and that's why they didn't get along. Meredith needed a Ben, and Everett needed a, Ju- needed a Julie. He didn't need that Julie. Sure. And that's the thing I, that almost ruined the film for me. Um, and... Yeah, it it doesn't have as big of an impact on me personally. Um, I I get enough support out of the the supplementary content of of him not being right for Meredith and this idea that he's pushing that relationship because it's there in order to get married, in order for his mom to see him married and taken care of in some way before she dies. Um, and and that's an, enough for me, but I can totally see how that's, you know, I, I don't disagree with anything that you say. But I feel like since I was just really hard on the film just now, like, I feel like that was kind of a tangent. I, I should mention some <laughs> of the things I thought it did very well. Like, um, well, we already mentioned it, it juggled all these characters very nicely and found really interesting ways to make each character completely, uh, give them more to one side. Like... The father could have just been the, um, the stereotypical, you know, cool father. He's not really strict, but, you know, everyone respects him. But then they make him going out and smoke weed with the son, Ben. I thought that added a fun element to him. Or Ben. Ben could have been this completely loser character that just shows up on holidays because he needs money. But he's a successful document documentary filmmaker. So, you know, he breaks that stereotype. Uh, I thought there being a deaf character was very interesting because then each character had to sign all their lines and that can't be easy to do. And they and they treated uh, Diane Keaton's uh, uh, sickness very well. Like it was it was definitely a thing, but they didn't make too big of a deal out of it. And they treat it, it's almost like a, a silk glove. They it was uh, very gentle. Yeah, I'm not sure where to where to go with it. It's um... Yeah, no. Any other thoughts? <laughs> I, I need I need somewhere to pick back up. <laughs> uh, I did write in my notes, Craig T. Nelson is the bomb, yo. If that helps at all. <laughs> well, it, you know, you, we were talking earlier about, I say that a lot when we're, you know, I, we referenced this. We talked about this. Um, Craig T. Nelson's character was one that had an interesting dynamic with regard to the family's feelings about Meredith because he seemed to be the peacekeeper of the family. He was the one that tried to, you know, reach across the aisle, if if you will. Um, but then he was also the one that had the most dramatic reaction during that um, dinner scene where, you know, at first it started out as this, hey, this is an uncomfortable conversation, let's move on. But when it kept going, he, you know, shouted and shut the table down. Um, yeah, he smacked the shit out of that table. <laughs> Which I think was understandable. You no, know, it completely was. Like, 
I don't think she meant anything bad by it, but she did just insult her, uh, their I son and son-in-law. I feel like she was trying to say that it's, it has to be difficult growing up. And yeah. why would you wish that difficulty on yeah. a child? But she... it was not appropriate. <laughs> no, that's not something you you can just say to this family that you've met for the first time. So, like, when he put, when he brought out his big boy voice, he brought it out. <laughs> But then it's amusing because then like all the scenes after that, he just went back to being kind of like the goofy, lovable dad. Like when he caught Ben and Merritt up together and he walks downstairs to tell uh, tell the mother about it. And he's like, I got something to tell you. And they're like, not right now. He's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like he just keeps trying to break. He's like, can I tell you now? Go away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, this movie covers so, so many different topics so many hot toppers that could very easily have become the movie itself, but I felt that those were weaved in really well um, in a way that says all of these different facets are a part of this family. You know, it, and it is. There's a lot going on with this. It's a big family, one, but then there's a lot of different types of people in the family. Um, and they're all addressed. You know, we, we address the, the gay child and growing up and what's what was that like with this family without showing flashbacks of them dealing with you know these things with diane keaton's reaction to this you can tell that she's not so much attacking meredith as she is once again defending her son against what has clearly been a lifelong uh process but then because it's so quickly and in my opinion naturally diffused you can tell that family and the people that, you know, may be coming into this family always take precedent over these issues. Yeah. That they were concerned about marriage. You know, they other films I could see them writing her off and why did you bring this woman into our home going that direction with it? But it wasn't that. It was, this is a very hard conversation. We clearly are coming at it from two different angles. And I thought that the writers and directors and actors all treated those different angles really respectfully without making villains out of anyone um and then shortly after it it's well is meredith okay can you go check on meredith and everett again the kind of the asshole of the film is the one sitting there going no i don't care yeah i couldn't believe he just like i understand he was upset also like she insulted his brother but like nothing yeah he's <laughs> like he's like whatever i'm everett and i look like elf i have a, like an elvis like sneer that's that's his inner monologue uh you put the subtitles on that's what comes up <laughs> um I, but you're saying that uh the writers handled this film very well they did and so did the director because like this film could have easily gone one of two ways it could have gone for a faux oscar bait type movie they would have changed that color palette to more of a grayish blue took out all the humor and just made it kind of angsty it could have been a various <laughs> oscar bait film or if they would have oversaturated everything took and like um played everything a little lighter they could have just been uh every other generic christmas romantic comedy which yep. if you go on netflix right now there's about a hundred of them uh, so like you know they walk the line where it's funny it's it, it's heartfelt uh, and at times it's just playing goofy like when, when, when Ben and Everett get into their big fight at the end and then the computer falls it's like when does this become a slapstick comedy 
the amount of times that my wife and I say to each other, is this, is this houndstooth? It is ridiculous. Just, uh, that's what Ben says when he opens his gift yes. and it's this jacket. And is this houndstooth? Oh, like when, when he's, got, he's fighting, he's like, careful, this jacket is literally brand new. <laughs> was one of his, his lines. brother's hand. <laughs> yeah. Jacket alone. <laughs> and, you know, we were, we were talking about the, how this, this family is kind of isolated by themselves in this large house, large family, very opinionated. Um, I think that, and Diane Keaton, I think, her the mom character is kind of the center of that. I think she has this redemption point after um, the the while they're opening presents and they have you know all of that drama starts where she goes back and Meredith spills the the strata all over herself and <sighs> and that strata looked delicious. <laughs> I don't even it know did. what it was. It still looked delicious. And Meredith starts weeping, like, what's so great about you? And Diane Keaton it's, is like, nothing. We're just all we have. And I think that says a lot about all of the snotty, like, who did you bring here? I think that really, like, I think Diane Keaton has that aha moment of, you know what? We are all assholes, but that's just who we are. What's so great about you guys? Nothing. It, we're just, it's just that we're all we've got. We're not so great. And you, you're the worst. I'm the worst. <laughs> I also love that she like, she got really ballsy right there. Like when she or she, when she pointed out Rachel McAdams' character and was like, "You're the worst." She's like, yeah. "Me?" It's like well, you you should know you're the worst. Everyone knows you're the worst. Like she I think it's terrible. I think at one point like she's sleeping and like one, someone in the family makes a comment. It's like, "Oh, she's better that way." The, the, the dad, she's nice like this, isn't she? <laughs> Another th- line that my wife and I have used. <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the movie actually came near the end when uh, Ben is laying in bed and Meredith comes up to him and he's like, take off your clothes and you feel like it's going to be like this romantic moment. He's like, you smell like puke. Because <laughs> she never changed out of that her dirty, eggy, strata clothes. And it's this been over- wearing for the last, like, two days. I know. It's this overhead shot with this really soft light coming in through the wind. I think moonlight at that point. And yeah, it's, you know, she just rolls into him and it's this really... So- you know that that's where it's heading and then yeah that line you you kind of smell like puke just diffuses all of that sexual tension <laughs> but in a really nice way because it's very indicative of the character because yeah. like he's he's cracking jokes the entire movie and like one of the most like me and Amanda kept getting a weird creeper vibe from him from the beginning because like as soon as he she walks away for the first time he mentions like his teacher used to be really into <laughs> Do you remember her or like later on, like when he goes, like when Meredith's waiting in the car, and he comes up and gives her a cup of coffee, and he's just like putting his his sweatpants boner up. In oh her my face. god, he's just stretching and like thrusting, <laughs> and without the frame... saying anything either. <laughs> and the Kudos framing to where the it's cameraman. just face to crotch, face to crotch, <laughs> and the look and think, on like, Meredith's face cup. of like you know eyes glancing over but trying not to look. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's things like that that I I really dug about this film and uh, yeah like I I thought I thought uh, the the comedy was very it wasn't like characters just say try, uh, being funny it just, it felt like specifically comedy written moments yeah but uh, it didn't have a it didn't have a problem switching between tone because like you said they'll have a that really tense scene at the dinner table 
And then something funny will happen afterwards. Like, when Meredith gets drunk, that's all gold. <laughs> right. And how awkward it is when the paramedic comes in. <laughs> you, oh, Meredith invited you. <laughs> how <laughs> do you know Ben? <laughs> and then it just starts getting awkward from there. And then that's more so than times when Everett <clears throat> pissed me off. Because, like, he's no better. He just gets into this macho bullshit. It's like, you were out with Meredith? You were out right. with Meredith's sister, bro. <laughs> yeah. Let me put but this wedding ring on you. they were looking for Meredith at the time. Mm, I'm talking about totem poles. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink. I really want to see that totem pole. I bet you do. That well, makes no sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I see what you're going for, though. Uh, any? <laughs> so, any final thoughts on Family Stone? Let me check my notes. No, I don't think so. Amanda, you got anything? No. Did you like it? Overall, yeah. If you had to give it a rating, out of five. Three and a half? All right, that's what I gave it. That's what I gave it. Nick, rating out of five. We've never done this before, but I'm making you do it now. I'd bump it up to four. Uh, Certainly has its flaws, and like you, I'm very uh, reserved about handing out perfect scores on things. There's always room for improvement. Um, uh, But yeah, four star. I feel like it's one of those movies, if I've seen it more times, I feel like it would go up. Because I, I, I would uh, I'd grow more to it. But yeah, my ratings usually are anywhere from three to four. It's very rare that I give, like, twos. Uh, and it's very rare that I give fives. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, three and a half, four. If, 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 if uh, 3.7 was a thing, that's exactly <laughs> where it would be at. 3.7. 3. 3.72. Like <laughs> have you ever seen on Netflix where, like, the star, it has a star rating and just one corner of a star right. will not be filled in? That's what it would be. <laughs> that little that little one arm of the star will not be filled in. And that and that's because of Everett. Be- that, that, that arm Everett, of the that star arm that's represents you, Everett. Everett. <laughs> it's like and I, I didn't want to hate that character because I love Dermot Mulroney so yeah. much. And it's like I love you, Dermot Mulroney, but you suck as Everett. <laughs> If I ever Everett get to meet Dermot sucks. Mul- but did he suck as Everett, or did Everett just suck? Well, yeah. Everett just sucked. He's he is amazing as Everett. And if I ever went up to him. I'd be like, I just want to tell you, Mr. Mulrooney, uh, you were great in The Family Stone, but your character fucking sucks. <laughs> Fuck Everett. And he'd be like, thank you. Thank you very much. In my mind, he talks like Elvis. Everyone just, talks like Elvis in your mind. I know, but you look at him with his hair, and he's got that lip thing going on. I did not on. see it at all. Do you know what I'm talking about, Nick? Go back I'm and not, watch it. He, he has an, he has an Elvis look. I am not going to get in the middle of this. <laughs> Too bad. You are in the middle of this. <laughs> I, I see that trap coming. <laughs> uh, it, it, in my heart of hearts, I have to say, I do not see the connection to Elvis. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to like be Googling Dermot Mulrooney pictures all night like, I, like, I, like you do. Um, and just try to find ones where he looks like Elvis and send them to you both. <laughs> look, I found a meme. I found a meme. <laughs> it must exist if there's a meme. If I made the meme, does that count? <laughs> totally. Because then it exists, and it's I'll on the internet. It. Everything, and everything you read on the internet is true. I've read a meme that said that, so it must be true. <laughs> so, which now means that I'm going to make a our... meme about how Nick looks like Elvis. Well, then it's obviously true. Duh. Uh, That's how this works. Listeners at home, I just want you to be assured that I just did a dead-on Elvis lip impression. It, it was dead-on. And then he went into like a whole rendition of Hound Dog that moved us to tears, but we had audio problems, so we had to cut it out. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think uh, I, I was really thrilled that we... Uh, decided to do a Christmas episode, and I also really enjoyed hitting it from uh, with two different films. Um, I, and I'll be honest, I probably would not have picked up Black Christmas ever without uh, your recommendation in this process because of that weird crossover of Christmas and horror. Like from like, if I were to pick up that box art, I would say, oh well, well there's a you know, a cheesy hook and would have passed it by, but wow, how how much great movie was there and, and I never felt like the horror movie during Christmas thing was was a shtick. You know, and it's uh it's exactly true. And I don't know if I would have seen Black Christmas either had it, had it not come on Turner Classic movies and it came up at a time where I was just trying to see it was when i started really getting into horror when i was in high school and i was just trying to see everything and i was like i've heard someone mention black christmas once in my life let's let's check this out and i had a double they had a double feature of that and a movie called christmas evil which i also recommend because it's 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 very much a character study of a man who's obsessed with santa claus it's really interesting you yes me (laughs) or mick foley um but uh, no, it's I, I love it. Uh, Yuletide horror is one of my favorite subgenres. As much as I know that a lot of them can be either terrible or hard to watch, like just not very good. Like Silent Night, Bloody Night, I've not been able to make it through because it's just really, it's it's very hard to watch uh, because it's it's really it's really uh, it's really dry. And then you got weird ones like Jack Frost, not the Michael Keaton one, but the one about a mutated killer snowman. I remember uh, that box cover from the old VHS uh, blockbuster days. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's it's it, you could pick up Black Christmas and just think, oh, this is uh, going to be a schlock, schlocky film. But then you watch and realize, oh, wow, this is actually a legitimately good film where <laughs> they're actually trying. Uh, and because if you – I don't know if I would have ever seen Family Stone. Like, m- my mom watched it every Christmas, and, like, I'd be in the room or nearby and I'd overhear it. But it wouldn't be a movie I'd be like, let's – pay 2.99 and get it off voodoo right to what i don't it would not have been top of my list uh but i'm glad i saw it because now i've got a new uh hatred for uh for everett stone <laughs> that you never knew you even had <laughs> damn you everett stone <laughs> all right well uh Let's uh, take it out. Uh, I don't know that I've done an official exit, but I'll give it a try. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really been a happy holiday with you listening. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for joining us. I hope uh, you'll join us again. And I missed you on our Exorcist episode. Um, I'm sorry. She oh, wasn't feeling good. It and And I also had, because of grown up and had to push us off into the wee hours of the evening um so i i blame myself personally (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you for listening um and uh do we know what we're doing next next time we're gonna do buffy the vampire slayer but we're gonna do it slightly different because you haven't seen the movie or the tv show so we're gonna watch the movie and the pilot episode for the television show and compare and contrast because um uh i'm blanking on his name creator of buffy the vampire slayer um the the joss whedon joss whedon he 
hates the movie even though he wrote it he hates it he does not like the direction it took and i'm in a vast minority i think it's better so we are going to talk about that and uh, everyone everyone tells me oh it's it's uh it pretends as if the movie doesn't exist but yet they reference things that happened in the movie so i call bullshit on that (laughs) so the tv show is kind of a sequel to the movie in a weird way but um that's that's what we're gonna do next Though you may um, not hear it in that order. <laughs> no, our, our order system is going to be all fucked up, but, you know, <laughs> you'll hear it when you hear it, and it'll be good. And you'll love it. I think so. And we're going to end on a joke real quick that I told to Amanda that made, her, that made her eyes roll when we watched the movie. If well, one I'm of looking the, forward it, to it. If one of the members of the family stone falls down the stairs, are they then a rolling stone? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> No, but it does gather moss. <laughs> you ruined I'll, my bad joke. <laughs> I'll see your terrible joke and raise you an even terribler one. <laughs> All right. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.